spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is an NFL uh, football legend uh, about Coach Vince Lombardi, and if you've heard that name before, it sounds familiar. Vince Lombardi was the coach of the Green Bay Packers uh, in the 60s, very successful coach, and here's how the legend goes. Um, his team, the Packers, had just suffered a, a devastating loss, so they've kind of huddled up after the game, and he's, he's sent them home um, dejected. Um, he sent them home lowly uh, to get some rest and to kind of reset things uh, for practice the next morning. So the players go home. Uh, next morning they wake up, and in, instead of leading them into or onto the field, Coach Lombardi takes them into a classroom. And as the story goes, he sits everybody down, and when everybody gets quiet, he walks over to a football. He picks it up and he holds it up in front of his team and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And he puts it down, picks up a piece of chalk, walks over the chalkboard, draws a rectangle. He says, gentlemen, this is a football field. He goes to one end of the rectangle, draws a line. He says, if you cross this line with a ball, you get six points. He goes to the other end of the rectangle, draws another line. He says, now if the other team crosses this line with a football, they get six points. Any questions? Um, interesting coaching strategy there, is it not? Um, sometimes the older we get, uh, the longer we live, the more complicated we tend to make life. Um, insurance gets complicated. Parenting gets complicated. Work, life, church balance gets complicated. And at the same time, the older we get, the more we find ourselves saying this, this, this common refrain. There's different versions of it, but how do I just, how do I just get back to the basics? Like, like Coach Lombardi was just getting back to the basics of football. How do, how do I do that? How do I get back to the basics of life? Because things just seem so complicated right now. I, I feel like life is, is more like chaos than it is about order and about peace. Uh, what, what I love about this passage is, is as wise and as old and as learned as, as, as Paul is in the gospel uh, he's remained himself a student, uh, a student of the basics. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the problem with this. 
and maybe you're already starting to feel it in your own heart. We, we don't like to be beginners. We don't like to be novices. Uh, we don't like to learn things. We don't want to walk into a room and feel like we're the least informed or the least skilled person in the room. We want to show up experts. We want to show up with experience. We don't want to be that person in the room who doesn't know what's happening and what's going on because that's very humbling, isn't it? Um, we don't like going back to the basics. Um, but the older we get, no matter how wise we are, no matter how old we get, no matter how much of the Scriptures we have memorized, it's always a good idea to come back to the basics of the gospel, come back to the basics of Christianity. And what Paul here is doing in this passage with a, a Lombardi-like simplicity um, and clarity is he's coming back to the basics of the gospel saying, look, what we know about the, the Colossian church is that some, some outside false gospels are starting to massage their way into the church and into the life of these believers. And so Paul's naturally action in, in a Lombardi-like way is to say, hey, we've got to talk about the football again. We've got to talk about the goal lines and the field again. We've got to go back to the basics. And, and notice, too, the context here. He doesn't simply inform. He doesn't just say, hey, here's the truth. Listen, here's the truth. It's done in the context of a written prayer. He's praying this on behalf of the Colossian church. So what is he praying for? What are the basics that he's praying for? Um, just two points uh, this morning. He prays for growth, and he prays for grace. Uh, first for growth, and second for grace. First, uh, growth. Now, I don't… Uh, recommend eavesdropping uh, in, in most situations, but, but now is, is a really good time to do that because what we have in these first uh, few verses, um, actually the entire chapter, chapter one is, is a written prayer by Paul. So what we get to be is kind of like spectators. We get to kind of eavesdrop in on, on something that, that, that Paul is praying for this church to become more real. And maybe you felt this way if you've heard uh, someone's prayer before. Maybe someone has prayed publicly and you've gone, man, they're really good at praying. Or maybe someone prays for something and asks the Lord for something. And, and you didn't say this out loud, but you kind of told yourself, huh, I didn't know that you could ask God for that. I've never asked God for that. I didn't know you could. Or, or maybe just the thought of, like, publicly praying um, makes you incredibly anxious. And, and it's not because you're a coward or you're, you're fearful. It's because you just don't know what to pray for. Prayer is, is hard. And what we get to do is we can get to kind of eavesdrop on Paul's prayer. We get to look at what he's asking um, the Lord for here on their behalf. And what it's meant to do is, is, is shape and inform what we pray and uh, what we ask for. So, we're going to eavesdrop, and two things I want you to see um, that Paul asks for uh, in this passage. He asks for growth in knowledge and growth in strength. Growth in knowledge, growth in, in strength. Uh, first, knowledge. Look at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, 
we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, now this point, like the next one, let me say this on the front end. By, by Paul's asking for it, you know, Paul, who has remembered um, or has, who has forgotten more theology than all of us have, have remembered collectively, is asking for more knowledge, which implies that we don't show up with it. That there is a certain kind of knowledge that Paul here is asking for that we are not born with. There's a knowledge that has to be given and received. There is a knowledge that has to be portioned out and heard by us that we don't naturally have. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't ask for it. We would just, we would all have it. So the first thing he asked for is, 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 is knowledge. And maybe you feel this way, but the more I, I looked at it this week, doesn't that sound funny to ask for? Like of all the things you could ask for, Paul starts with knowledge. Um, it sounds heady. Uh, it sounds nerdy. Um, what kind of knowledge is, is Paul talking about here? And there's two kinds in the Bible. There's a knowledge that Paul would, would, would say in his letter to the Corinthians. There's a knowledge that puffs up. You heard that passage before? There's, there's, a, there's a human knowledge that puffs up. The more we, we study, the more we learn, and the more we use it for self-promotion, the more we use it for vanity, right? We know people like that. We've been people like that. Um, they use knowledge as a means of, of vanity and promoting their ego. That's not the knowledge that Paul is asking for here. Um, that's one kind. That's, that's information. The knowledge that Paul is asking for here, look again at verse 9. Notice his language, the knowledge of his will. Now, what in the world does that mean? What is the knowledge of His will? When we use that language in our own prayers or in our own conversations with God or each other, when, we're, when we want to know the will of God, we're, we're exclusively thinking about us and what God is going to do with our future. Where will I move? God, what are you going to do with me? What college am I going to go to? Who am I going to marry? What's going to happen to my children? What is your will for my life? That's, that's not what Paul is getting at here when he talks about the will of God. When he says he wants that the Colossians and us to know the will of God, what he wants us to know is everything that Jesus Christ is doing, past, present, and future, to rescue sinners. That's as simple as I can put it. What he wants us and this early church to know is that, un, that unearned favor by Jesus Christ by an unobligated giver that leads us into salvation. He wants you to know this more than you know anything else. Know the will of God on your behalf. What this knowledge is, is supposed to then do and what this passage kind of implies is, is, is action. Think about knowledge in this way. Imagine you're halfway through a movie at a movie theater, and, you know, you're just kind of zoned in on the story and what's happening on the screen, and then, you know, your, your senses kick in and you smell smoke, and you're going, do I smell smoke? If 
Five seconds later, back door is kicked open, and one of the uh, movie attendants screams from the top of his voice, Fire! A rational person will take that knowledge and do what with it? Act. What what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to stand up. You're supposed to remove yourself from that building. Why? Because what you've learned is that there is imminent danger. Uh, In the same way, when Paul uses this word knowledge, he's not just talking about information. Information is just meant to inform. He's talking about knowledge, which implies action. It's supposed to move you. It's supposed to animate you. And he even elaborates on that further in verse 10. This knowledge is supposed to lead you to bear fruit in every good work. It's supposed to lead you into wisdom and understanding at the end of verse 9. And when you hear the word wisdom, don't hear a synonym uh, or a word similar to knowledge. In, in, In Paul's vernacular, knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Wisdom is is skill in the art of godly living. That's what my Hebrew professor in seminary got into our heads. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living, godly acting, godly doing. It's hearing instruction. It's hearing the grace of God on our behalf and then responding to it. We learn things the hard way. We hear God's grace and we disobey. We hear God's grace, we disobey saying, no, I don't want that to be your story. I don't want that to be your case. By resting, by meditating, by remembering the grace of God, that's what animates you to bear fruit. That's what what animates you and moves you to wise living in the Christian life. That order is incredibly important. So he prays for knowledge, deep knowledge of God's grace. But he also asks for growth and strength. Now, all of us know this, even our children know this, energy and power just don't come out of thin air. Energy, power, electricity, things we need to run our house, to run buildings, to run our car, has to have a source. Um, the fancy way of saying this is, is we need a derivative. Uh, we need um, not only our knowledge to come from outside of us, our, our, our knowledge of God's will, our knowledge of, of God's grace in Christ to come from outside of us. We also need power and strength to come from us, from outside of ourselves. Um, think about it this way. You can have as many outlets in your house as you want. You can have all the chargers, all the cables you need, but if your house is not on the grid your house is dead. No matter how many accessories and outlets and cords you have, you're dead because you're not on the grid. What, what Paul is telling us here, and, and again, it's, it's a mind-blowing truth, is that you know, to the Colossian church and to us as, as modern-day believers, you are on a grid like no other. It's unsurpassed. It's unparalleled. The the grid that you are on because you are united with Christ, more on this next week, because you've been brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ through His Spirit, you have a grid, you have a source of power 
That should blow your mind. Um, when I was thinking through this point this week, it reminded me of a story of my childhood. Uh, I had a number of, of rockets. You know, maybe you remember those old rocket kids, kits uh, from when you were a kid. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a paper towel roll that you put a cone on the top and a little booster in the bottom. You glued on the fins. And uh, I had a number of these and, you know, enjoyed shooting them off, you know, here and there. Well, one time we went to uh, my, my grandparents' farm in Indiana, and I brought my rockets with me. Except I forgot one thing, very, very important thing. I forgot the battery that you hook it up to. Uh, I forgot the power source. And so, like a, like a regular, you know, eight or nine-year-old, I thought, well, what could I use instead? So, mind you, this is a farm, and I'm out in the, in the barn without adult supervision. That's important at this point. And I thought, well, since I don't have a battery, there's an outlet right here. So the two wires that you would normally connect to the posts on the battery, I just thought, well, I'll just stick those in the socket. And that should do. That should do the same thing. Well, two things happened when I did that. Number one, the rocket did go off. It ignited the rocket. It did go up into the air. Uh, but thankfully, I was only holding the plastic parts of the wires. I wasn't actually holding the metal itself because it melted the plastic almost instantly and, and burned my fingers. Uh, thankfully, you know, I don't, I don't have, you know, major scars uh, to this day. Um, but it, it, was, it, was, it was a power that I hooked myself up to um, that I didn't realize uh, far outmatched, far outweighed uh, the power that the rocket was usually used to. That reminded me of the Holy Spirit, because the promise of the Holy Spirit is this. It's not that He'll be beside you. It's not that He'll be near. It's not that He'll be available. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that He is going to make your body His temple, meaning you can't get closer. You can't get more personal. You can't get more intimate than being a temple of the Holy Spirit yourself. That's meant to communicate access, nearness, closeness to the person who's responsible for bringing Jesus back from the dead, to the person responsible for creating this world out of nothing. You have an access to a grid, to a person that that should blow your mind. And that access has been given to you through Christ. You now have the Holy Spirit within your very body, within your very chest, inside your ribcage, somehow, supernaturally, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit communicating to you limitless power at your fingertips. Not because of anything you've done, not because of any power that you have, but because God Himself resides in you. And so His prayer is that they grow in the knowledge of God's grace, but also that they grow in strength that appetites die, the bad ones, and good appetites are created, that you really start to see change. You start to see in, in your community stories of, of reconciliation and, and addictions being broken where the only explanation is, is that had to be the Holy Spirit. Only explanation. It wasn't your will. It wasn't your discipline. It wasn't your drive. That had to be the Holy Spirit. growing in the knowledge of His grace, but also growing in strength. He asks for these things. Let's, let's apply this uh, before we move on um, to the second point. Verse 9, 
again, notice this, this church father who, who knows more theology than us says in verse 9 that we, have, we, being he and Timothy, have not ceased to pray for you. So this isn't just like a one-and-done prayer, like, okay, I've got this covered. Um, Paul ha- is, is, is praying for this daily, regularly. It doesn't mean literally, ceaselessly, but, but this is an ongoing request. He, he's asking God uh, for the same things over and over again. And, and think about your own prayer life for a minute. You know, so much of, of our own prayer life, we kind of tie it to, well, you know, it's just what good Christians do. Good Christians, you know, pray, and, and they do it regularly, and that's just what behavior uh, of, of a good, you know, God-fearing Christian is, is, supposed, to, is supposed to look like. But, but I want you to think about it in a different way. That, that's true, but that's only part, part of it. Paul here is praying ceaselessly, not because he's, he's trying to out-pious you or me. He's not flexing on us. He's praying ceaselessly because he knows, and he wants the Colossians to know, and he wants you and I to know, to pray ceaselessly because he knows that our trials, our troubles, and our struggles are ceaseless. The more you live, the more you nod your head at that statement. Life gets more difficult. It does not get easier. It gets harder. The trials escalate. The quantity and the quality of them. It gets hard to get to the end of our life and, and, and finish well. Paul knows this. And so he doesn't pray ceaselessly just because that's what good Christian people do. It's, it's because we're ceaselessly um, under the microscope, hammered, suffering, struggling with the brokenness of this world. And so as often as as those rear their heads, so often Paul prays for them and us. But he also prays ceaselessly for another reason. He prays it because he knows we have a Father in heaven who will never cease to give us what we need. Again, he's not doing it um, to see, you know, like if he can get a, a counter in heaven, more blessings, the more I pray. Why is he asking so often and so much? It's because he knows he has a Father who is so willing and so ready to be generous and to give. And my argument is this, is if we know that, on one hand, we know that there is, we're going to be, um, we're going to be ceaselessly assaulted by the, by the brokenness and the curse of this world, but at the same time, we have a Father who will give us what we need whenever we ask, why wouldn't we pray like Paul without ceasing? Why wouldn't we want to? It should change the way we pray. Maybe you've got a young believer in your life, a child who hasn't professed faith yet, a non-believing neighbor, a non-believing family member, and you've thought to yourself, I need to pray for them, I need to pray for them. But when it actually comes down to it, what do you pray for? Uh, Paul gives you a great template here. Pray that they would, they would grow in knowledge of, of God's will. 
and pray that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Those are great things to ask for. Um, Paul prays for growth, but notice too he also prays uh, for grace, jumping into the second point. Again, what is grace? What is our working definition of grace? It is that unmerited favor, that unmerited blessing by Jesus, who is an unobligated giver. What He is doing unto us to bring us back into fellowship with Himself. Grace is that one-way street of which Christ is at the top and we're at the bottom. It's very important. That's a one-way street. It's not a two-way, one-way street. What God is doing to bring us back into fellowship with Him. Maybe you've played the word association game before. You know the word association game? That's where if I say a word, you say um, the next word that comes to your mind, sort of like automatically, right? So if I were to say the word autumn or fall, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And if you say pumpkin spice, there's a lot of great churches in the city. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, if we were to play the word association, you know, with Israel and Paul's time, and if we were to say the word salvation, I would argue that nine out of ten Israelites would say the first thing that would come to their mind would be Exodus. When you think about what did God do, you know, big picture, uh, to, to save us as a people, any God-fearing Jew who has read their Old Testament would say without a fault, um, the biggest picture we have of, of God's salvation is the Exodus. Remember the plagues, all of those plagues, darkness, and frogs. Um, remember Passover uh, with the blood and with the lambs and the Holy Spirit coming through and taking the firstborn. Uh, remember the, um, them leaving Egypt and, and the cutting of the Red Sea and them walking through on dry ground. And then remember the sea swallowing up Pharaoh's army. Um, and now with the army, you know, behind you devastated and destroyed and with, the, and with the promised land out in front of you, like how could you not say, like, when I think of salvation, that's the first thing that comes that comes to my mind, is the exodus. Here's what's so great about this passage. What Paul here is saying to the church in, in Colossians, and what he's telling us is that we, we have entered a new exodus. And he uses exodus language here on purpose. He is actually using Genesis language in this passage too. We just didn't have time to get to it. There's a new creation, but there's also a new exodus but this one's cosmic. This one's not localized. This one's not nationalized. This one's cosmic with someone better than Moses. Let me, uh, let me show you. Uh, look at verse 13. He has delivered us. Those first few words, He has delivered us or rescued us. I mean, just like Israel um, we have been saved, and we have been rescued. Well, what was Israel… who was Israel saved from? Um, what were they rescued from? 
Um, and, it, and it's kind of twofold. Um, they're under the power of Pharaoh. They're in Egypt. And, and life's not going grand. It's not great. What is their condition in Egypt? They're slaves. They're not free. Uh, it's, it's the worst form of humanity that you can experience, slavery. So, through Moses, what does God do? He rescues them from what we could say is a domain of darkness, right? He takes them up out of Egypt from this slavery, out from underneath Pharaoh's hand. He pulls them out. He rescues. He delivers. But what Paul is saying here and why the gospel is so much better is, you know, our, our enemy is, is not earthly. Yes, we have pharaohs, and yes, you know, slavery still exists in, in many forms, but we have a greater enemy. I know you've heard of, of the holy trinity. Have you ever heard of the unholy trinity? The holy trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The unholy trinity is the prince of darkness, the devil himself, the world, its influence, and our flesh. We have an enemy outside of us, and the world and in the evil one, we also have an enemy inside of us, which is our flesh, our sinful nature, that remnant that's left from Eden. And all of these three things kind of come under, under this umbrella of what Paul here is calling the domain of darkness. Yes, Moses rescued from Pharaoh, but do you know what Jesus rescues us from? Our greater enemy, the evil one. And for more on that, go, go look at Matthew chapter 4 and the Gospels where he went out into the wilderness, went toe-to-toe with the evil one, and came out victorious. Why did he do that? To prove himself? To brag? No, because what he's producing in that chapter is the righteousness that he is going to give to us, a perfect righteousness. He defeats death. Um, I think one of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon titles is The Death of Death in the Death of Jesus. He defeats our great enemy, death. And what Paul here is saying is, you think Moses is great? Try Jesus. Try Jesus. Like Israel, He delivers us out from this domain of darkness. And again, what what this passage implies, it implies... Um, that we're helpless, that we can't get out of this domain by ourselves, that this is where we show up. And unless Jesus act, unless Jesus do something, we we remain in this domain of darkness. We've got to be rescued. And again, that's hard for us. That's devastating to our prize. We don't like asking for help, right? Well, that's what we're rescued from Notice what else he says um, in, verse, in verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. He's taken us up out of this domain of darkness and what? Transferred us to the kingdom of, of his beloved son. It wasn't just good enough for Moses to take everybody out of Egypt and, and to cross the Red Sea and go, there you go, you're free. Um, the good news got better for Israel. Not only are, are, are you free from that tyranny, from that slavery, but God's got something incredibly 
gracious and wonderful in store for you. It's called Canaan. And it's a land flowing of milk and honey. Guess what, Israel? The good news only gets better. And, and Paul here, again, using Exodus language, says the same thing to us. It's not only are we delivered from this domain of darkness, but we're now transferred into the kingdom, this kingdom of light, this kingdom of His beloved Son, treating the harsh cruelty of the prince of darkness. It's now being traded for this never-ending, this wise and the sovereign kingdom of Jesus Christ. You're a member of it, and that, and that membership can never be revoked. When you're in, you're in. It's that good. It's that sure. But notice what else Paul says uh, in verse 12. He rescues, he transfers, but God also qualifies. Verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. There, there's two words in that verse that I want us to focus on, qualified and inheritance. Uh, those two words drip with grace, drip with grace. First, that word qualified, we, we know this and we understand this instinctually. Nobody strolls into the Oval Office. Nobody wanders through security and onto an airplane, right? If you want to get into the Oval Office, there are so many steps, there are, are, are so many screenings that you have to do to be, quote, unquote, qualified to get in. And the same thing for airplanes. Nobody just wanders onto an airplane. Uh, the same is true about the presence of God in His kingdom. Nobody just wanders in. You, too, have to be qualified. Here's the problem. Scripture says, for what fellowship does darkness have with light? God is light. He is holy, holy, holy. He is not like us. There's no fault. There's no darkness in Him. But we can't say the same of us. We're like our parents, Adam and Eve. We're, we're full of darkness. We're full of sin. And the Scripture presents a problem. What fellowship does darkness have with light? It doesn't, unless you're qualified. Unless someone qualifies you and gets you in on their ticket. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament because it summarizes this transaction very, very simply. God made him who knew no sin, being Jesus, to become sin for us. So what Jesus does is He transfers our sin and the wrath we're due onto Himself. We get that. We've been there. We know the gospel. Most people in Salina know that. But here's the other half of the verse. God made Him who knew no sin be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear the trade? Jesus takes upon Himself what? our sinful, our dark, our rebellious record, and everything we deserve because of that. And then what do we get from Him? We get His righteousness. We get His robe. We get His record. Undeserved, unearned, it's a gift. That's what Paul is getting at when he says inheritance. 
right? That's why that word is so important. He says, this is not a wage. A wage is something you earn. He says, this gift is an inheritance, which means you did nothing to earn it. Nothing. But it's given to you nonetheless. Why? Because you're in. Because you're a son. Because you're a daughter. Jesus Christ qualifies you to get into this kingdom of light, this kingdom of His beloved Son. Do you see the trade? Have you rested? Have you received that trade? To only focus on one half of that is half of a gospel. That's half of Christ. There has to be both. He has to take your sin, your wrath, your unrighteousness, and you have to receive, which is humbling, which is hard for our egos. You have to receive something you did not earn, like an inheritance. You have to receive His record on your behalf. It takes a lot of humility to do that. Moses got him out of Egypt, but only Jesus can get you into the new heavens and the new earth. Canaan was temporary. The kingdom of Christ is eternal. We have something better than Moses. We've got Jesus. Last thought, not only does, does Paul pray without ceasing, uh, it also says in verse 12, look at the first part, he prays with thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Father. Have you ever noticed about yourself just your lack of thankfulness? I do all the time. I catch myself just going seasons without like cataloging and verbalizing things I'm thankful for uh, in God. It's not because they're not there. I forget to. And, and I wonder if we're here this morning and maybe thinking like, well, well what do I have to be thankful uh, for in, in God? I, I wouldn't call myself a, a thankful person, you know, spiritually, you know, before God. I wonder if the problem of our thankful, thank, thanklessness is we haven't gotten a glimpse, we haven't increased in our knowledge of the will of God, we haven't cataloged in our minds everything that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf to bring us back into fellowship with Him. Thankfulness isn't just something that just kind of appears in a believer, it has a source. Why is Paul so thankful? He's thinking about the, what the Lord has done to him, what he's doing in this church, and that's fueling thankfulness. Do you see where this thankfulness is coming from? From cataloging, from thinking, from meditating. I think I've made up a word this week. Remembitating. Remember and meditating on all the good things that God has done for us, and then what happens naturally? God, thank you. Yes, good moral people give thanks to God. But what Paul here is saying is if you want to lead a thankful life, effusive thankfulness, genuine thankfulness, start to look at what God has been doing among you, within you. Ask other people what God is doing. Where have you seen His grace uh, in your life? That will naturally lead uh, to thanksgiving. Last, last point is this. You know you're growing in grace. 
You know you're moving forward and you're gaining knowledge. You're, you're growing in strength. You're seeing God grow you, sanctify you. You're thankful to God because He's justifying you. He's qualifying you into His kingdom. You know you're growing when you get to the point to where you say, well, dadgummit, Jesus is doing everything. He's qualifying me. He's awakening me. He's strengthening me. He's growing me in knowledge. He's doing everything. What am I supposed to I'm not doing anything. He's doing it all. When you get to that point, you're starting to understand that this world revolves around an axis, and that axis is Jesus Christ. The throne is occupied, and He is working, and He is active, and He is living, and He is doing everything we need for life and godliness. When you get to that point, maybe with a little, a little pride in your voice going, well, what am I supposed to do? Get off the hamster wheel. God's not looking at your dutiful obedience going, now there's my kiddo. You're already his child if you're in Christ. There's nothing that can unhinge or un- uproot you from his hand. He has done everything. Your job is to receive that righteousness of Christ, to burn calories, to extend energy, to rest in it. You want something to do? You want something tangible to do this week? Use all of your energy. Use all of your calories. Use all of your focus. Use all of your your, your quiet time this week to rest in the grace that Jesus Christ provides for you. Spend some time in margins there this week. And what happens when you do that? Almost instinctually, you begin to bear fruit. Knowledge turns into wisdom, godly living, which Paul then says turns into more knowledge. It's cyclical. The more your thankfulness towards God increases, genuine, not fake, like, okay, we're supposed to give grace and give thanks. Now now it's I'm truly thankful for that because it was God-given. You want something to do this week, do that. Try that on for size. It's harder than you think. We're not good at resting. We're not good at receiving. We want to do things. We want God to be proud of us. We want God to applaud us. The best way to honor God is by honoring the work of His Son in our lives. I hope that brings you great peace and joy this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this great word. Thank you for giving us this prayer through Paul. Help us, Spirit, to grow in knowledge, to grow in strength, to be good askers, Um, to not try to do things on our own, to not forget you, uh, but to truly rest and to be people of petition, to be good at asking you for your strength and for your knowledge. Would you also help us uh, to see your grace? Thank you for being candid with us that we're broken, we're slaves like Israel, but thank you for rescuing, thank you for delivering, Thank you for qualifying us through your Son. We believe 
Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.